Hey everyone, just a quick note before we start. Um, a few people have asked me in the past whether it's possible to support the podcast and I've always said, no, it's not. But today it is. So you can now, if you feel so inclined to, buy me a coffee. Um, I think it's about £5 or $6 and it's just a way to say thank you and encourage me to keep making the show. Believe it or not, it actually costs me money to make the show for things like hosting fees and editing tools. So yeah, it's just a nice way to show your support if you feel able to. Um, I want to say a special thank you to those of you who've already bought me a coffee. I really appreciate it. It really means the world and it's so exciting to have your support. So thank you so much, um, especially to Ellen and all of the people who go under the pseudonym someone, which is very mysterious. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you as always for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. They are a human being like I am a human being. They have the same aspirations that I do. They want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be appreciated. They want to be heard. And there's so much that has interfered with that. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the show, we have James Fox, the founder of Prison Yoga Project. Yoga changed the course of James's own life and led him to want to share the practice with those who need it most. But when he started volunteering, he didn't know then that this would be the next 20 years of his life. In 2002, he started his own organization, Prison Yoga Project, a program to teach trauma-informed yoga and bring yoga and mindfulness to prisons. Prison is an environment of stress. And while 70% of prisoners return to the community, there is a 76% re-arrest rate within the first five years. Prison Yoga Project supports incarcerated people with trauma-informed yoga and mindfulness. Their goal is to help reduce re-offending, but also to provide a more humane and transformative experience for incarcerated people. James has also written a book about yoga and has sent thousands of copies to prisoners who have requested it. He began the program in the US in San Quentin and has now brought the practice global from the UK to Mexico all the way to Australia. At the centre of the Prison Yoga Project is a belief that healing can address crime, addiction and mental illness. One prisoner says, There have been days where I walk out of a yoga class where I reach for my car keys and try to remember where I parked my car because I forget that I'm in prison. Another says, I feel like I'm coming home to the real David, not the one that has to survive in a prison environment, but the real me. In this episode, we talk about the male role complex, how trauma is stored in the body, and why everyone should support yoga in prison if they want a safer and more humane society. I hope you enjoy. I trained as a yoga teacher, and uh, the guy that was teaching me yoga, who's running the classes, said that he had some of his most amazing experiences teaching um, yoga in prisons. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. I'm going to Google it and see who's running these programs. And you were the one of one of the first uh, that came up, and I think you you are the leading provider for yoga in prisons. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Did you go straight into full time starting the charity, or before that was it volunteering? Oh, it was volunteering. Side? You know, I mean, I was I, I was paid to teach by the Insight Prison Project, but it wasn't my full time job. I was doing other things as a full time job. I never really looked at it as well, this is what I'm going to be doing full time for the rest of my life. No, I had no idea. I began a yoga practice 35 years ago. And it was at a time in my life where I was dealing with a, a, a lot of challenges, a lot of emotional challenges. 
And friends of mine, particularly some women friends of mine, kept telling me, you should, you should go to yoga. And I had the typical male response at the time, which was, yoga? I'm an athlete. <laughs> you know, and, and I, 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 I'm fond of saying, I guess I had to suffer enough to finally say yes and go to yoga. And as soon as I went, because I had already had a meditation practice, as soon as I started practicing yoga, I realized, Oh, this is meditation in motion. So as I, then I got very much involved in uh, in the in practicing dedicated to yoga and taking workshops and trainings and things like that. And as as the year two thousand approached, I was looking at it as a sort of a seminal year and a time in my own life, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to teach, but I have no desire to teach in a yoga studio. I want to bring yoga to people who aren't being exposed to yoga. That's what motivated me to bring yoga to young men at risk and young men who were in residential treatment facilities and detention. And I did that all voluntary for a couple of years. And I realized very shortly after I started doing that, yes, I'm onto something. My intuition told me, based on my own experience, I, I grew up in Chicago, and I grew up, I grew up around a lot of typical sort of what urban males grow up under. I, when I was with the Inside Prison Project, not only did I teach yoga, but I became a violence prevention teacher. And one of the things that I trained in as a violence prevention teacher was something called the male role belief system mm. and how young men grow up adopting what they think is the right way to think and act as a male. And I went, well, that was me growing up and um, really being able to understand when you break that down, how that leads to different kinds of issues that cause a lot of harm that cause men to accept violence as as acceptable way of 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 operating in the world being aggressive rather than assertive you know assertiveness is being able to speak to what your needs are without going beyond that aggressiveness is going beyond it and that so many men grow up feeling well if you're not aggressive you're not going to get yours so to speak then when you start dealing with men who have been involved in criminal activity, it's like, what do you mean not be aggressive? I had to be aggressive. I was slinging drugs. I had to get paid. I had to do this. I had to do that. In retrospect, when I, when I started training as a violence prevention teacher, I started to see all of the different ways that I was influenced as a young man and why yoga was so important to balance me. And for me to become more sensitive to myself and to seek another, another path for male strength. When you think about your own journey and you think about who you were before yoga and who you are post-yoga, what does that look like? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think without yoga, I would. who knows what path I would have taken. I was going through the disillusion of a of a relationship uh, where I had a child and I, I broke up from the family and I was really distraught. And I saw there's two ways to go. One is you turn to becoming unconscious by turning to drugs and alcohol and acting out. And the other is you, you take a time out. And fortunately, that's when I had these friends of mine saying, you ought to go to yoga. You know, you what yoga gave me was my own personal therapy, so to speak, that I could engage in a yoga practice and get the value from a yoga practice that I could get from seeing a therapist, maybe even more so because it involved the body. Mm. And now what I know about trauma and what I know about some of the trauma I experienced early in my life now what I know about trauma and the importance of involving the body, I realize, oh yeah, well, I'm, a very, I'm, I'm very much of a body-oriented person. So that was a perfect outlet for me to find yoga as a, as a path for my own healing. And hey, I'm not a 
complete project. Believe me, you can ask my wife, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I also see that yoga is very much of a, it is a mindfulness practice. It's an embodied mindfulness practice. So it ups the quotient on mindful awareness of, oh, that's that thought that's taking me in that direction, which leads to that action. That in and of itself has interrupted harmful behavior that I used to be engaged in. You know, I'm building positive samskaras versus negative samskaras that I was building in the past. That's that was the turning point, and it continues. I mean, if you if you have some kind of serious illness and you have to take a prescription drug, you have to take the drug on a regular basis. If you've got you know behavioral issues, which almost everybody has, unless you're doing some kind of practice. To balance those behavioral issues that you have, um, you know, you're going to go back to old patterns of behavior, you know, conditioned patterns of behavior that most of us grow up with. Mm. You know, it's so clear all my years of working with incarcerated people, um, not only doing yoga, but also getting to know them, understanding that this early in life conditioning, a lot of it based on survival. I mean, this is the way that I had to act in order to survive because my needs weren't being cared for by my family. So I needed to start stealing. I needed to start doing drugs. I needed to start. And then that gradually leads to criminal behavior and incarceration. I want to just go back to what you were saying about yoga as kind of a somatic therapy. You know, lots of people have read now, I think the book, The Body Keeps the Score and similar books that kind of go into how the body holds trauma. And I know that in your programs, when you do yoga with um, people who are incarcerated, it's important for you to do trauma-informed yoga. What is trauma-informed yoga? Well, first of all, it's, it's an understanding of the backgrounds of trauma and how they manifest in terms of symptoms, health symptoms. But there are other particularly symptoms of hypervigilance, hyperactivity, lack of impulse control, and then the opposite of hypo, um, non-action, collapse, and things of that nature. So understanding how trauma can be re-stimulated in people if they haven't been able to work on unresolved trauma. And a lot of it is, how do you balance the autonomic nervous system? I mean, if you really kind of get to the very core, How do people in general balance their autonomic nervous system, the the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system? And most people who've been impacted by trauma, their sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. People don't understand that the fawn part is where you basically are appeasing to get, you know, it's a survival mechanism. So that how how can you provide people with different skills that they can learn in yoga that they can take into their lives, you know, without having to do yoga poses, but to learn, well, the way that I use my breath and the way that I can position my body can engage the parasympathetic nervous system can bring upon that can bring upon a calming and a relaxing state. So that that's probably the biggest thing. And so in terms of a yoga practice, then it puts more of a focus on engaging in the other aspects of traditional yoga, not just movement and postures, not just asana, Hmm. but also focusing on conscious breathing, pranayama, on the meditative aspects of yoga. And it's not like, particularly if you're dealing with people who have a difficult time balancing their autonomic nervous system, you're not going to ask them to sit down and meditate for a half an hour. But you're going to bring into a practice different moments of calming the nervous system um, so that they can learn, I can take five breaths in a particular kind of way to help reset myself when I'm anxious, when I'm feeling 
So that, that's pretty much what trauma-informed yoga is about. There's an educational component. There's a neuroscience component of understanding the brain and understanding the aspects of the brain and what parts of the brain are engaged when you're re-stimulating a traumatic experience. All of our teachers, or most of our core teachers, have studied with Bessel van der Kolk. In fact, myself and our European director have been invited to teach a workshop at his trauma conference in May. Uh, and for listeners, that is the author of the book we just mentioned, The Body Keeps the Score. If you were to compare a yoga class that you'd go to in London or Chicago or New York to a yoga class that happens in a prison, what are the main differences? Well, first of all, it begins with the environment, right? I mean, typically when you go to a yoga class, as soon as you walk into the space, the space is usually really calm and beautiful and clean. That's another thing, clean. You know, there might be nice music playing and and it's a very comforting kind of a place. Well, when you walk into a prison, it's 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 the exact opposite. So you're trying to find a physical space that is the most ideal to practice yoga. So fortunately, in a lot of prisons, we get to we get to practice in chapels. And that's what we try to do. Um, Unfortunately, there are a lot of prisons where we get put into the gymnasiums and often and, you know, so you're in this great big room and oftentimes you have foot traffic going through there. Either staff is going through there or other prisoners are going through there. So so it begins with the environment itself. Secondarily, if when you typically when you go into a public yoga class. I would say at least 80% of the practice is based on asana practice. So 80% of what you're doing is movement, postures. Um, there's not, there typically, unless the teacher is really well trained in pranayama, you're not doing a lot of pranayama practice. You're not doing breath work. I'm just clarifying if anyone who doesn't know yoga, that's breathing. Yeah, yeah. Well, conscious breathing, you yeah. know, conscious breathing and different kinds of conscious breathing practices can bring about different effects, different kinds of effects on the mind and the emotions. Mm-hmm. So if you look at traditional yoga, if you go back, and I always say, go back to the eight limbs of yoga that Patanjali wrote, the eight limbs of yoga, more than 2000 years ago, there are your foundational principles for a yoga practice, for a traditional yoga practice. There's four major components to a traditional yoga practice. There's conscious breathing, there's movement and postures, there's meditation, and there's deep relaxation. How do you teach a class where you, where you give all four of those issues balance? We don't wait until the end of the class to do deep relaxation in Shavasana. We may interrupt an asana flow with a standing Tadasana, kind of a standing one minute drop into your body, standing meditation, feel what you feel before moving forward into the next set of asanas or flows, vinyasa flows of the practice so that your body gets used to the balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic, sympathetic and parasympathetic. This is what encourages impulse control. Mm. By learning how to engage, back off, engage, back off. And again, once again, what's most important is learning these skills so you can take them out of a yoga practice and into the world. A lot of people say, well, public yoga is mostly a workout. Right. In trauma, one of the greatest benefits is the physical part of the workout is what's called discharge. So you're discharging the stress, the anxiety that's held in the body that can be precursors to re-stimulating whatever unresolved trauma that you're carrying in your body. Can you give an example of that? Because I think sometimes that phrase, the body keeps the score, is misunderstood. I think one understanding of it is that, you know, it's parts of the body that hold memories of traumatic events. 
But then there's also, as you say, this kind of um, that actually the body is super primed to be in fight, flight, fawn, or um, I always forget the other one, fight, fight, fawn. Freeze, fawn. Freeze, right. that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, or, or that just you're, you're stuck in this sympathetic nervous system response, which means you're hypervigilant, you're um, uh-huh. kind of on edge. But those are kind of two different ones. When you say that, that, that it can be like activated, what does that mean? So um, when a person experiences trauma, they go into a whole anatomical uh, reaction. Um, you know, holding the breath, tightening the stomach muscles, different, you know, heart rate goes up or, or you know, or in, a, in the case of freeze, shuts down. So the re-stimulation of trauma, you're constantly re-stimulating that reaction in the body. That's how the body keeps the score. The body reacts as if the trauma is happening again. And so this has all been researched and studied. Vanderkoek has researched, not only Vanderkoek, but Gabor Mate. He's another mm-hmm. physician. Peter Levine, you know, these all these different. Stephen Porges is another person. It's all been studied to understand that what happens to a person who's experienced trauma and it's unresolved is they keep re-experiencing the trauma. And so they, they have the same bodily felt reactions to the original trauma. Maybe not exactly the same, but a lot of the same. And so over time, that leads to a lot of health difficulties, um, high blood pressure, um, and, and then it can lead to obesity, diabetes, even cancer and things like that. And once again, you can check out the research on all of this, all of this sort of thing. Mm. That's how the body keeps the score. So when you're practicing yoga and you're calming the body down, and then of course, there's such a huge body of research on the value of yoga, on the value of the yoga on the internal organs on the circulatory system, on joints and connective tissue, on muscles and bones and so on and so forth, all the health benefits Mm. of yoga. What you're doing is you're practicing yoga and you're not asking people, now I'd like you to remember your trauma. And now we're going to go through a yoga practice. No, the wisdom of the body takes over. This is where discharge comes in. If you're leading a yoga practice in a way where you're consciously doing different kinds of practices to balance the nervous system and at the same time to discharge things that are held in the body. The other thing that comes into play here is the understanding from an Eastern perspective, both both from a Chinese perspective, Chinese medical perspective, and a yoga perspective, that the body has thousands of energy channels. In Chinese medicine, they're called meridians. In yoga, they're called nadis. And these are all these energy centers, not just the, the seven chakras in your body, but all these energy centers that get blocked. And this is the understanding of Ayurveda, uh, you know, from the, from the uh, yogic standpoint and from Chinese medicine, that these meridians, these energy channels get blocked by the stress, by the habitual stress, by the chronic stress and anxiety that people are dealing with in their lives. So when you go to a yoga practice or when you have an acupuncture treatment, what you're doing is you're relieving those energy channels in the body of the stress that's held in the body. And if that doesn't happen, if you don't have any kind of access to relieving that, it accumulates. And it starts It starts the process of dis-ease. It starts the process of disease. So it's commonly known stress is the fundamental cause of disease in almost all diseases. The chronic stress is, is, is what causes so many problems for people. If you take, for example, yoga, as you say, kind of helping you drop those trauma responses, how does it actually work? Like you're in a yoga class you're calming yourself down, you're calming the nervous system down. But then when you come out of the yoga class, is that is that a sustained impact? Or is it something that's like every day you need to do it to maintain uh, the impact? Or can you kind of unlearn what the body's been imprinted with? I think that's why it's so important to focus on different practices that you can that you can 
make operational in your life. And that's why if you're just focused so much on asana practice and you got to get your yoga mat out, you got to do this pose, you got to do that pose, you got to do this vinyasa, it's like, okay, I get it, but what am I going to be, what am I going to do when, you know, I'm starting to go off with my partner or I'm in a situation where I'm in a highly intense situation and I remember, oh yeah, just take five mindful breaths. Remember from the yoga class that every long extended exhale, you're actually releasing stress in your body. And and this is interesting, Georgia, because people who've been in our program, who've been incarcerated, and then, and then they get out and they're reintegrating into society and they're dealing with all kinds of issues. The reports that we get back is, what is it from your yoga practice that you are able to use? It's always their breathing. Mm. It's always what they learn in terms of calming themselves down. They don't go, they don't get out of prison and in, enroll in yoga studios. They're not comfortable to go to a yoga studio. They don't have 15 or $20 to go and and go to a yoga studio, they're more concerned about making a living and, you know, reintegrating with their families and things like that. So this is why, and this points to the fundamental difference between how we teach in prison, how we teach a trauma-informed class versus public yoga, in that there's so much more of a concentration on learning skills that you can take back into your life. What have been kind of practical tips that people have taken away? You said breath work or just taking five deep breaths is a big one. Are there any other ones that you've seen that are particularly effective in those situations? Definitely, definitely seeing if you can incorporate into your life uh, <clears throat> meditation practice. You can take 10 minutes every day and give yourself 10 minutes to see if you can disengage from thoughts and thinking, much easier said than done, and redirect your awareness to the felt sense of your body breathing. Because at any given time, if you're alive, you're breathing, right? As part of the human condition, we're all caught up in thoughts and thinking. From the time we wake up in the morning until the time we go to sleep at night, so that if we can train ourselves to back off, even if it's just for 10 minutes, that's mindfulness practice. That's the beginning of learning how to calm your nervous system, of bringing yourself into homeostasis, of a balance of the autonomic nervous system. The other thing that's really interesting, Georgia, is that, and Gabor Mate, who, you know, Gabor Mate was, was born during the Holocaust, during World War II. And at two years old, his, his mother gave him to other people for his own safety. And one of the things that he's been asked over time is, well, you have you had such extreme trauma that other people who've had moderate trauma in their lives, what are they complaining about, you know, versus what you went through? And he said, you can't look at it that way in terms of whatever, whatever issues you dealt with in terms of abuse, neglect. Um, abandonment, you know, regardless of where you come from and the circumstances you come from, if it impacted you in a way that you're having difficulty with your own mental health, your own emotional health, then that needs to be acknowledged and not compared to somebody else who's had so-called extreme trauma. Yeah, and I, I find that to be really important. So do you not see, well, maybe it's not that you don't see a difference. It's just that it's, it's, ju it's just as meaningful to that individual experiencing it, irrespective of how society deems the severity of that particular experience. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, a study, there's a study in the United States that's used quite often. It's called adverse childhood experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are, they're called ACEs. And you can look at the ACEs and you can identify, you can look at the ACEs and you can see if you have any ACEs from your, this, is, this all has to do with developmental trauma. 
how developmental trauma, if unaddressed, how developmental trauma impacts you as you go on in your life. The kind of conditioning that you uh, adopt as a result of dealing with the developmental trauma that you experience. Of course, this leads to criminality for people who experience major ACEs and major, you know, developmental trauma. But I think it's it's also a really good gauge to be able to look and go, oh yeah. I mean, it really helped me, you know, in terms of when I saw it, oh, that ace and that ace and that ace. If a person looked at it and said, oh, I wasn't physically abused, but I definitely was emotionally abused. And understanding that emotional abuse can have as much of an effect on the nervous system as physical abuse. Just having these understandings and for those people who are who are motivated to heal, to have a better understanding of the kinds of trauma that they may have experienced. I read recently, I'm not sure this is the most up-to-date stat, but the recidivism rate in the U.S. is 76% in the first five years, which means that when prisoners are released, 76% of them will reoffend in the next five years. Do you think doing yoga has an impact on that rate, or do you think that actually it's not something that can be measured in statistics or numbers? Yeah, the only way that we could measure we could measure that is that we if we had access to uh prisoners files and we have not there's not one prison system in the country that has allowed us to have access to their files so that we could track somebody who's been in the yoga program and see well they didn't reoffend they didn't come back mm-hmm. so the only information we have is anecdotal information the real real key time of of reaching somebody and this is the hardest thing in terms of yoga from like 16 to 30 or 16 to 25 and you try to get a young man who's 22 23 years old who goes to prison to get involved in a yoga program and it's like are you kidding me yeah because because how are you describing i can't remember what you called it like the male belief system male role belief system male role belief system the way you describe that outside of prisons, you know, to 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 an untrained eye, you would expect that that's even more pronounced within prisons. Is that fair to say? And if so, what is the response to other prisoners doing yoga? Like, are people excited about it? Are they mocked for it? How do people respond to the programs? Well, in the beginning, when you start a program, there's usually like criticism from other, and there's even sometimes criticism from staff. Because this perception of yoga is public yoga. Oh, what do you have, candles? and? Um, <clears throat> but then the reputation of the class spreads. And one of the first things that you hear, and this is so typical, and this is anecdotal, but this is some of the first things you hear. I had the best night's sleep I've had since I've been incarcerated from the very first yoga class that I took. So sleep deprivation and sleep problems are epidemic in prisons. Chronic pain issues, epidemic. You know, living conditions, particularly in in the U.S., the bunks that they sleep on and things like that. So the top line things are better sleep, which has everything to do with calming the nervous system. Relief of chronic pain. Well, everything in prison spreads by word of mouth. And so what happens in a very short period of time is, oh, yeah, you ought to check out that yoga program. It's not what you think it is. And so in the beginning, yeah, there's issues and there's there can be some difficulties. Now, after 20 years and after the impact that we have had in prisons in the U.S., I mean, we're in 14 to 16 states with programs in the U.S., the Prison Yoga Project is fairly well known. Um, we've sent th- over 35,000 copies of my books to incarcerated people free of charge. The jails and prisons contact us because they understand that what we're doing, you know, the, the value of what it is that we're doing. And even from an economic standpoint, even if you looked at it from it could help in reducing their healthcare costs, which are some of the greatest costs that they have for keeping somebody incarcerated is the healthcare cost for people. So 
it has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. What do you say to people who look at what you're doing and approach justice in a more kind of retribution-focused way and don't believe in rehabilitation, don't think it's fair, don't think it works? What's your response to people who say that? You know, why are you teaching prisoners yoga? You know, isn't yoga meant to be a nice thing for people? Have, have you had that kind of criticism? Or, or? Yeah, not so much anymore, but in the beginning, yes. So look at the recidivism rate in this country. Are we returning people back to society so that society is safer? So all the politicians in the country and maybe in the UK talk about uh, public safety. What can we do to increase public safety? Well, um, how about focusing more on rehabilitation rather than punishment? Because if you're not providing people with skills to calm their nervous system, to mitigate their behavior, to change their behavioral patterns, then you are not serving public safety. So if you're even talking to the public, to people who go, wow, why are we giving programs like that to people? What kind of person do you want to run into at the grocery store? You have no idea if the person was incarcerated. What kind of person do you want to run into on the highway? What kind of person do you want to run into at a football game, at a soccer game? Somebody who hasn't had any kind of rehabilitative programming? Somebody who hasn't learned about calming their nervous system? I think it's a no-brainer. And it's, you know, particularly in the U.S., I mean, you have such a better healthcare system in, in the UK. There's much more of an understanding in the UK, particularly through your healthcare system, of the impact of trauma on people. The annual budget for the California state prison system is $12 billion. 1% of the $12 billion is spent on rehabilitative programming. Wow. And so we and a lot of other rehabilitative program providers keep advocating with the state legislature, you're the ones who have to encourage, maybe even push the state prison system to add more rehabilitative programming, to spend more money on rehabilitative programming. That's how things happen in so-called democracy. If I said to you, you can have one wish to the justice system, to the prison system, and I can make it happen, I can't. It's a hypothetical. Um, but yeah. what would you ask for? What do you think is the biggest need in the prison system? I definitely rehabilitation, top line. Um, and what does that I mean, mean to you? Is that like reskilling? Is it medicine? Is it? It would it probably more from a psychological standpoint. Bring the innovative program. That's what California is doing. They're bringing in innovative programming, proven to be effective. Restorative justice, you know, a big focus on restorative justice uh, because restorative justice addresses harm caused. And it's not when you commit a crime, it's not against the state, it's against people. So you address the harm caused people and you work with incarcerated people, people who've committed the crime on taking personal responsibility for the for the harm that they've caused rather than all this focus on you committed a crime against the state so you you did the crime you got to pay the time so to speak so balancing out that that punishment versus rehabilitation and we've got a long way to go in that regard of course i would say have alternative programs, but it's like, okay, you start with what we've got, which is this monumental, giant criminal justice system, prison system, and working with what is, rather than going and saying, okay, you should have more diversion programs. We should. Criminal justice system should have more diversion programs. To have more diversion programs means we have to have a better healthcare system. We have a terrible national healthcare system. Wait, what's a diversion program? Well, a diversion program would be rather than sending people to prison who have drug offenses, send them into drug programs. Uh-huh. Like triaging. Yeah, and and you know, like 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 the UK, like Scandinavia, uh, like the Netherlands have these programs where. 
if it's a nonviolent drug offense, you don't go to prison, at least, you know, your first offense or your second offense. You go into these diversion programs where your issue is addressed. And there's a whole lot of emphasis and focus placed on your issue, on, on resolving your issue. Here, the largest mental health institutions in this country are jails and prisons because our mental health system is broken. We don't have alternatives. So that's monumental. If I was to say to you, if you, to answer your question, if I was to say, well, we should have diversion programs, like where are we going to put them? We can do more rehabilitative programming and, and start to balance out this equation of, you know, 95% punishment and 5% rehabilitation. Mm. Gee, what if we could double it? What if we could go from 5% in this country was rehabilitation, 95 is punishment. What if we could bring that up double to 10%, the impact that that would have in terms of recidivism? Because from we get these letters all the time asking for a book. Oftentimes, the people write about their lives and about, you don't know how much this book means to me, to have a resource like this, to, that I can do my own self-rehabilitation using your book. It's so clear that incarcerated people are so hungry for rehabilitative programming. Do you have a core belief that everyone can change? No, I, no, not everyone, because I think that a lot of people with mental health issues, the only the only way that you can balance them out is through um, probably through prescription drugs and some very, very, you know, forensic psychiatry, you know, treatment. I'm not sure that they could ever be rehabilitated so that they could be free to basically not have those kinds of services. Once again, there's an over-dependence on pharmaceuticals in the prison system. Using pharmaceuticals as a way to calm the nervous system, but then the secondary effects of pharmaceuticals on a person's health is can be very, very detrimental. <laughs> yeah. I just ask because I told you I interviewed um, Gregory Boyle from Homeboy Industries. Yeah, Father, Father Greg, yeah. Yeah, do you know him? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he has a very strong kind of core belief, and maybe it comes from his religion, but just that, that everyone is inherently good and, you know, that everyone can kind of return to that state. And I was just curious if you share that belief or if you divert from it. I think everybody is inherently good, except that with mental health issues, those mental health issues can interfere in that basic goodness. And I, I think it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people who, no matter what you give them, be it therapy or pharmaceuticals, they're, they're not going to get better. And that's just a fact. There's a movement, has been a movement in the U.S., transformative justice, to abolish prisons. Well, you can talk to any incarcerated person and say to them, well, how do you feel about ab abolishing prisons from what you know? And they'll say, no. There are people who are incarcerated that you don't want to let them out of prison. That they'll, they'll say that to you, that they present a danger to society. And do they have a, do they have a threat of basic goodness in them? Yes. But is it covered up? Is it buried? In, in, you know, a lifetime of trauma and a lifetime of abuse? Yes. So I think, unfortunately, although I, I totally understand where Father Greg is coming from, I, I don't agree with it in terms of the mental health issues. What do you think is the biggest misconception of prison and prisoners? Like, if you think about yourself before you got involved in any of this work, so before you did, even before Prison Yoga Project, do you remember your impression or your impression of what prisoners like, what prisoners are like, and, and does it differ now you've got deep experience in the Dramatic, system? Dramatically different. I mean, you know, it basically prison systems throughout the, th basically throughout the world, because 
most of the criminal justice systems are retributive justice, retributive meaning punishment. And whoever heals, whoever transforms themselves being punished. Unless people are given the opportunity to heal and given tools to heal, they're not able to transform themselves. And what I have seen from people who've murdered people, um, who committed major mistakes, major errors in their lives, a lot of it based on their conditioning, that once they have the opportunity to create some insight into how did that happen? How was I able to be the person who took somebody's life and be able to begin that healing process and to understand that they are a human being like I am a human being. And this is where I definitely come together with Father Greg in that they have the same aspirations that I do. They want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be appreciated. They want to be heard. And there's so much that is interfered with that in their lives. And then when they go into the prison system, how does that get bridged? Rarely does it get bridged in the prison system because there's so much focus on punishment and it can't be bridged. When they're incarcerated, they are constantly treated as the person who committed the crime for which they're being incarcerated. So the fact that they might be a brother, a son, a father, all of these other qualities that they have are completely disregarded. So it kind of reaffirms that one-dimensional identity over and over again. Right. Just in case there's someone listening who is inspired by this and wants to set up something, not necessarily the same thing or in the same space, but has a kind of desire to make a difference, but they feel overwhelmed by the idea of starting a charity or starting a nonprofit. What was your experience kind of early on in setting this up? What was the most challenging part when you had kind of when you were bridging between having the idea and, and setting up the, the charity? Well, fortunately, very fortunately, I had a lot of entrepreneurial experience. I had started a couple of different businesses um, in fact, one of them I was engaged in when I started. And I just had the chutzpah because this really represented sort of a change of heart in my life, which was I really want to be doing more things in my life that are aligned with my heart. Karma yoga, you know, and bringing yoga to people for the prospect of their own healing. And I was really motivated to do that. That's what motivated me to start working with youth. And then particularly when I got contacted by this nonprofit organization, will you come into San Quentin? And it was like, let me, give me 24 hours to think about that. Because yeah, my first feelings were like, I don't know if I want to go in to a prison and start working with men and how's yoga going to be received. And I just said, put that out of your mind because you believe in the healing power of yoga. You believe, and I felt confident in my ability to present myself to other men. So when I first went into the prison, I thought, how many prisoners are going to be interested in a yoga program? I'll never forget. I went into my first class by myself. I wasn't even escorted in by anybody. I went into the prison by myself. I got buzzed through a cyclone fence out onto a yard where there were all these incarcerated guys hanging out on the yard. And here I walk in with a yoga mat under my arm and immediately guys start whistling at me. Like, what's that under your arm, sweetheart? And that, those are the nice things they said. And then I, I, I went to the office where the staff was and I walked in with the yoga mat under my arm and they looked up and they looked at me and they go, who are you? And what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here to teach the yoga class. And they said, yoga? They've never had yoga in this, at, the, at the prison. So they were incredulous, like we're having a yoga program. And I said, yeah, the warden has approved the yoga program and it's supposed to start today. Five men 
in a in a unit that housed a thousand men, five men showed up for the first class. And I like to say they were the bravest men in the prison. Five men showed up for the class. And that was my very first class. And then the next week, seven men. And the week after that, 10 men. And within a month or so, the class was full. The size of the room could only accommodate 15. It was much quicker to bridge the issue with the incarcerated people than it was with staff. It took a long time to get buy-in from staff. Why? Their preconceptions about yoga. There used to be a term that prison staff used to call us hug-a-thugs. Oh, you're a hug-a-thug. I mean, I was called that to my face by correctional officers who were 10, 15 years younger than I am. How did that make you feel? Um, like a typical male, um, you know, like talk about the male role belief system, you know, how, and this was before I was introduced to the understanding of male role belief system, but intuitively I understood, well, there's a different way of looking at, you have no idea what yoga is about. I mean, I could put you in plank pose, these guards, you know, I could put you in plank pose and you'd probably drop in 30 seconds. But that's an internal dialogue that I'm having that I need to let go of. So, <laughs> yeah, like a, yeah, getting into a war with them. Yeah, right, exactly. To do the same, same thing that causes the age-old violence and difficult, to respond to aggression with aggression rather than not to react and to work and to do your own work on not reacting. Interesting. I've realized we've run on quite a lot, James, so yeah, yeah. I'll let you go. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you want to leave with the listeners or, yeah, anything else you want to cover? No, I, I first of all, I, I want to thank you, Georgia. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity to um, inform people about the work and also to inform people about who people are who are incarcerated and to try to demystify that and have a better understanding. So I, yeah, thank you very much. If folks who are listening to this are yoga practitioners, seek out trauma-informed yoga wherever you are, that it's not so uh, foreign anymore. In London, you have the, the, the Minded Institute. It's called the Minded Institute. You can find it, unlike here in the U.S., in the U.K., you can find this. Um, you can find, you know, affordable therapies and things like that to deal with trauma. Yeah, and people can reach us at uh, prisonyoga.org if they're interested. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Such an interesting conversation. I feel like I learned so much. I think people are going to love this episode. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave it a review. I always read them. Or if you want more from Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. 